perhaps you're one of those people who hoped it had simply gone away. We wouldn't hear about it again. Or maybe you're one of those people still enraged at the way people behaved in number 10 Downing Street whilst telling us to stay at home, not to visit our elderly relatives, and they closed all the pubs. Well, we've learned overnight that 20 fixed penalty notices are to be issued to those who took part in the Downing Street parties. Whether that's 20 different people or whether some are going to receive several of these notices is yet to be discovered. There are also probably more of these to come. Now, we're told that Boris Johnson's name is not in the frame as of yet. But what does the whole story tell us? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the culture is pretty rotten at the heart of government. They really couldn't care less. They're happy to go on saying, do as I say, not as I do. It tells you uh, that in number 10, there is a lack of discipline. Uh, the leader is not in charge of his own house. And when you see the number of times that Boris Johnson told the House of Commons that all the rules were followed, you have to ask yourself, did he mislead the House of Commons? But then, if it's the absolute truth that you want, then Boris Johnson is not your man. Indeed, he never was. But events have moved on significantly since the Metropolitan Police opened this investigation. Especially so, given the sheer magnitude of what has been happening in the Ukraine and the threats that poses to the world. And in a United Kingdom that so heavily supports the Ukrainian cause, and I have to say, driving around the country, the sheer number of Ukrainian flags on display really takes some believing. And yesterday, President Zelensky of Ukraine praised Boris Johnson's actions, saying he'd done more than any other Western leader, whilst the French and the Germans were split, divided and sitting on the fence. So I wonder, I wonder, you at home, do you care about these 20 fixed penalty notices. Does it really matter? Let me know your views, please. Farage at gbnews.uk. And I have to say, had 20 fixed penalty fines been issued prior to the Ukrainian war, I think things may have been very different because a lot of backbench members of parliament, indeed a lot of ministers, were waiting, you know, biding their time to see whether actually the police would decide that offences had been committed. Let's go to number 10 Downing Street and speak to Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. I was just speculating that had this news emerged prior to the 24th of February, I suspect that over 50 letters of no confidence would have gone in and it may well have been the beginning of the end. But it almost, I guess, seems trivial compared to bigger events. And I just wonder, all those MPs, all those ministers who were biding their time, waiting for the outcome of this, what have they had to say today? Well, it is fascinating, isn't it, Nigel? We do seem a long while uh, away from when Boris Johnson said there were no parties and the guidance was followed. Seem a long way away from when Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, suggested the police didn't retrospectively look into COVID uh, breaking of the rules. In saying that, you're also a very long way away from the free will atmosphere that we had here in Westminster in January when this story was all consuming. 
uh, at a time in which it was on the front pages almost every day. And as you well know, Nigel, one of the key things about politics is momentum. And certainly in January, there was a sense of momentum against the Prime Minister. That has been stopped in its tracks, but you're right, because of the war in Ukraine. His supporters would suggest it has also put what potentially happened inside Downing Street and indeed in other Whitehall departments into perspective, mm. that when you look at some of the big political issues the country now faces, whether it is, of course, that war in Ukraine or the cost of living crisis that a few parties inside Downing Street it doesn't seem like that big a deal. However, there are still some Conservative MPs who feel that the Prime Minister may well have misled Parliament, who also fear that he himself may well get a fixed penalty notice in the weeks to come. Is it acceptable that a Prime Minister, a leader, a man who imposed rules, the most stringent rules we've seen in this country ever, on millions of people and then didn't abide by them himself should remain in power. Well, clearly for the opposition, and as I say, for some Conservative MPs, that position wouldn't be tenable. So I think it's fair to say, yes, Boris Johnson has got a hell of a lot more headroom than he had back in January. Yes, things have moved on. The momentum against him has slowed down. However, to suggest that he's entirely out of the danger zone, I think, is not okay. clear. As I say, he could face a fixed penalty fine, and we are still... Yes, we are. We're still waiting for the full Sue Gray report, and that could still yet be incredibly damaging for the Prime Minister in and around the local elections, which are due to be held at the start so of the So is, is the feeling, Darren, is the feeling that this announcement overnight of 20 fixed penalty notices, that this is just the start? Yes, definitely. Uh, I think without a shadow of a doubt. The, the feeling here in Westminster is that this is simply the kind of lowest hanging fruit, if you like, that it is uh, junior civil servants who faced uh, these fines where there was a very obvious breach. Now, the Prime Minister's defence, we think, is that he is arguing that this place behind me, Downing Street, is not simply uh, a place uh, that is an office, uh, but also his home, and so he might be able to get around the rules somehow that way. But, no, the expectation is, because the police only set out or send out even more questionnaires in the last couple of weeks that these investigations are still very much live and that we are expecting uh, more penalty notices uh, to come. So I think for many Conservative MPs, you're talking about their reaction there, Nigel, they are still holding back. They are still waiting uh, to see what the police do, to see what is in Sucre. Yeah, okay. Many of them tonight are actually with the Prime Minister at a dinner and drinks event in which he's trying to rebuild that relationship. <laughs> Some of them, it must be said, are staying away because they think it's ill-timed, given what's happened today, and not at all appropriate. Darren, thank you very much indeed, as ever, Darren, with brilliant analysis. And at the end of the day, what will really matter to Boris Johnson's future is what happens in the local elections on May the 5th. Now, remember, we were waiting for the full Sue Gray report, but it didn't happen because Cressida Dick, the boss of the Metropolitan Police, said they were launching their own investigations and we're beginning to get some of the fruits of that. But I wonder, is this a good use of police time, given the other problems they face in this, our national capital? Well, joining me is Chris Phillips, former Detective Chief Inspector of the Metropolitan Police. Chris, good evening. I... I just wonder, were you surprised when Cressida Dick announced that no, the police were going to investigate? Well, yes, but uh, there was quite clearly, Nigel, pressure from all sorts of angles to, for her to engage this investigation. Yeah, under any other circumstances, any other location, I don't think uh, an investigation into what are effectively very minor offences, albeit 
slightly different uh, in Downing Street. Minor offences, this would not have been, uh, needed an investigation at all. So, do you, I mean, is it your view that this is actually a waste of police time? Well, I think the police have got a lot of other things to do. And, uh, you know, my own view is that they're, uh, they've been taken up with some unusual and uh, maybe um, unnecessary investigations. Listen, you know, there's clearly was uh, some parties going on in, in Downing Street. It clearly, the country wanted it investigated. So I think Cressida Dick quite, probably quite rightly thought that uh, that should be done. But uh, listen, there are all sorts of crimes happening in our cities, rapes and murders that uh, are much higher priority for policing. But those that are running this investigation, you know, and we've heard about the first 20 fixed penalty notices, but our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, made the point that if in the course of the next days or weeks, a fixed penalty notice was to be given to the prime minister, uh, you know, that could just be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, there's a heck of a lot of pressure, isn't there, on the Met right now? Yeah, there is. And we mustn't get carried away with the severity of the offences. These these offences are ones that are kind of the equivalent of a speeding fine, if uh, if you can if you can understand that. It's it's at the lowest end of prosecutions. In fact, it's not a prosecution. It's a fixed penalty to, uh, notice. Um, you know, they, the people that have been given these uh, notices could decide to go to court. Probably unlikely, uh, and uh, then it could uh, could rise to criminal proceedings. But this is the whole point of these fixed penalty notices was to take away people from the minor crimes, minor incidents that uh, from the court proceeding. Yeah, I guess it's it's the political implications of all of this, of as perhaps, as I said earlier, uh, do as I say, not as I do, that mattered more uh, than the legal side of it. But I wonder uh, the timing of all of this. Um, is this the last hurrah? for Cressida Dick as boss of the Met. When this is all over, is that when she goes? Well, I certainly she's due to go in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, in my views, it would be a sad loss. She's, uh, she's been a police officer and understands policing uh, very well and has done a difficult job, a good job in very difficult circumstances, has made mistakes because police officers around the country, and particularly in London, will make mistakes. That's, uh, that's the, the, the point. You know, they get millions of interactions with the public and some of those will go wrong and at the end of the day she bears the brunt of that. Yeah and I mean look you know you've been supportive over there in your comments but let's face it um, across the media she's become a very unpopular figure um, but I guess in the modern day given the level of scrutiny um, on individual police officers and given uh, that it's the boss uh, that in the end has to bear responsibility. Uh, we saw that very much, I guess, in the Wayne Cousins case. I mean, that was seen to be reflective of the leadership of the Met Police, perhaps unfairly in some ways. Is there anyone that can take this job and get a good press? Well, no, because uh, unfortunately the media are like baying hands at, uh, at policing at the moment. And uh, it's it's a amazingly difficult uh, job to do. She's got... 30-odd thousand police officers out there, all of which could make a mistake tomorrow, and that mistake could be televised and, and by someone on a mobile phone, and, yep. and it's embarrassing for the commissioner. But, but uh, it's, it is an incredibly difficult job in the days of social media, and, uh, and the fact that everyone now seems to uh, know their rights more than they know their responsibilities.
Yeah, I'm afraid that is right. Very difficult to be a cop these days. Chris Phillips, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Well, that's where we are. We'll find out more on this over the course of the coming weeks. Um, I guess, I guess that Boris Johnson right now, it looks like he's got lucky. And I, I wonder, is somebody at the Met really going to issue the Prime Minister with a fixed penalty notice? I somehow doubt it. In a moment, remember the Insulate Britain mob closing down the roads. And do you remember that mother from Essex who was trying to get her kid to school, who nudged forward some of the protesters with her car? Well, she has pleaded guilty. She is going to lose her licence. We'll discuss all of that in a moment. I asked you, do you care about Partygate as 20 fixed penalty notices are handed out with, we're told, more to come? Well, I suspect these reactions will say you care a lot less than you did a couple of months ago. Uh, Jenny says, couldn't give a damn. I am in more of a lather about how to pay my energy and fuel bills. Joe says, yes, let's have a full list made public. Deborah says, no, don't care at all. All made-up outrage from mainstream media. Another viewer says, the people responsible for making laws are comfortable breaking them. How can you not care? Paul says, at the moment, with all the other things going on, no, but that doesn't make it right, which I think on balance is the best analysis of the lot. Now, net zero. I've talked again and again on this programme about net zero, its short-sightedness, the fact that actually in many cases it is not going to reduce CO2 emissions as we export manufacturing jobs and we continue to import oil, gas and coal, all of which could be used in this country. But decisions that are made by governments affect ordinary folk living their lives. Here's just one little example. There are huge numbers of people in Britain who are fanatical about steam engines of all kinds. And Bill Giles is the organiser of the Wheeled of Kent Steam Rally. And Bill joins me um, on the programme now. And Bill, these steam fairs and steam rallies, they take place all over the country, hundreds and hundreds of engines and contraptions, uh, big crowds go and love all of this stuff. Um, but you're facing a problem with your show this year. Please explain. Nigel, good afternoon. Uh, we are indeed. Uh, basically, the situation is that uh, with everything that's been going on, uh, both um, in uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia, and uh, and also, of course, with the uh, the issues with regards to uh, licensing of uh, um, mining in the UK, which has basically come to a grinding halt as a result of uh, um, the situation with the uh, um, the Welsh Assembly and uh, Westminster not allowing uh, future mining to continue in this country. We are faced with a, uh, a massive uh, shortage of coal, both for industry, but uh, and ultimately for, uh, uh, for the shows and events that, uh, that are put on around the UK uh, that require coal to, uh, to fire the, uh, the heritage theme movement. 
Now, we were importing quite a lot. I think about four and a half million tonnes a year we still import. I think much of it was coming from Kazakhstan and states like that. Um, but what is it, I mean, what particular kind of coal bill do you need to make these engines work? Uh, the, the type of coal that we uh, that, that works best for the engines that we're running is uh, dry steam coal. Uh, it's exactly the same coal that is used for uh, production of um, uh, in the steel industry and also in the um, uh, the energy uh, uh, the power stations. So we are very much a, a byproduct of that, but at the same time. Um, you know, we rely on it as much as industry does. And of course, where you're talking about net zero, very important because it's not just, we're, a, we're an offshoot of, of the fact that we mine coal in the UK and we mine some of the best quality coal in the UK. So it's really a case that we need to be looking after the industry uh, or industries, which will in turn help us uh, in the long run. But if you can't get that quality of coal, Bill, then you just import coal that is more polluting and use that, I guess. That's basically what we're being faced with at the moment. But of course, with um, with diesel being incredibly expensive around the world at the moment, um, coal is not being imported or being imported in very limited quantities. Uh, and, and all that is being imported is going straight to power stations and uh uh, and to the steel industry for what, you know, for what we have left. So tell me, how much of a threat, and I know, I know, I know that you've got your steam rally and there are others all over the country that, 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 that go on with quite big crowds that turn up at them. So how much of a threat does this pose to your annual steam rally down in the wheel this year? It's, it's a very big threat. Um, if we can't get coal, then we really are in a position where you know, the engines will stay in their sheds and the whole historic movement and the education for the next generations will just will end up being something that uh, uh, that, as you're putting on now, we, it will end up just being uh, images on a screen that children can look at rather than getting involved, seeing how it works. Um, you know, we are a massive educational side of uh, showing how history um, and for better or for worse, the Industrial Revolution actually built this country. Yeah, no, and we were, we were at the forefront of all of this. Bill, thank you for coming on and sharing that with us. And I wish you well uh, for getting the right coal uh, in the right quantity so that your rally can go ahead this year. One little example. But actually, to a lot of people, things like that matter. It is just madness. And that applies to oil. It applies to gas. We should be producing those raw materials in this country under the right environmental conditions. It's completely mad to leave ourselves dependent on other nations and very often regimes uh, that we don't really like very much. But that is the whole net zero madness. Now, maybe there's some good news to come because, of course, we were told on the 9th of March by Boris Johnson in response to now so many commentators and people standing up and saying these plans are a massive act of self-harm that doesn't help this country, we were told by the Prime Minister Boris Johnson on March the 9th that within days a new energy strategy would be revealed and there have been hints that we'd head towards energy independence. Now, I 
Since that time, we've begun to think the Prime Minister thinks energy independence is not getting energy from Russia. Uh, that is not actually what we're asking for. We're asking for us to become a net exporter of energy because that would produce tens of thousands of well-paid jobs, many of them, of course, in the north of England, in Scotland. Now, that really would be levelling up. But I'm afraid that as we approach the end of March, and we're now nearly three weeks in to this promise of something happening within days, as yet, we've heard nothing from the Prime Minister. There are rumours that early next week, the government's new energy policy will be introduced. And people like Bill from that steam fair will be looking at this very, very carefully indeed. Now, my what the Farage moment, and there are, I mean, there are so many stupidities around the world, it's difficult to actually pick them. But I mean, please, folks at home, try this for size. The government removed the word female from the law governing medical procedures and replaced it with individuals just, just a few years ago. I mean, it is totally astonishing. And we have now, in this age of inclusivity, because inclusivity, of course, is absolutely everything. And we now have the Walton Centre NHS Foundation Trust in Liverpool uh, that is asking male patients if they're pregnant before having their scans. And the reason, of course, is that if you're having a CT scan, an MRI scan, even a fairly standard X-ray, that if you're pregnant, there is, of course, potential risk to the unborn child. But that now applies to male patients as well, and they have to uh, make sure uh, on that form that the hospital knows that they are not pregnant. I mean, are we simply losing our marbles here? And this isn't about being nasty to minorities. We're a modern country that is tolerant to minorities. But quite why the overwhelming vast majority have to go through nonsense like this, I just don't know. I don't see any benefit to it whatsoever. Uh, but it also says a lot about this so-called conservative government, because they, in their own way, in so many ways, are actually, many of them, woke warriors themselves. Oh, but of course, at election time, they will tell you they're fighting cancel culture and they're standing up for free speech and traditional British values and they'll do something about the universities. And they make these promises over and over. And millions of British people are taken in with it and say, oh, thank goodness, they've come to their senses at last. And then absolutely nothing happens. And, you know, I'm sorry, but this attempt to obliterate the identities, male and female. It is wholly ridiculous. By the way, Keir Starmer's party is in a far worse place than the Conservative government. You know, they don't even want to tell you. They can't even define what a woman is. Uh, and I think there's a very, very big, silent majority out there that says this is all a complete load of rubbish. Now, secondly, on what the Farage, and this one makes me angry. Do you remember Sherilyn Speed, who was from Essex, and she was taking her kid to school? She'd set up her own business during the pandemic. You know, somebody who wasn't looking for handouts, somebody who had get up and go, and she was off to work. Uh, oh, sorry, off on the school run prior to work last October, when somebody from Insulate Britain, and they gathered around the M25, stopped in front of her car. She got out. 
She remonstrated in no uncertain terms. She, she then, with her car, sort of nudged a couple of people forwards. As a result of all of this, uh, she has now had to admit, well, not had to, but she has admitted, driving dangerously. She has had, provisionally, her licence taken away, and there will be a sentence of some kind given to her on the 6th of May. Let's have a look. Let's have a listen at Sherilyn on that day in October. Well, there was a mother and a self-employed businesswoman absolutely enraged that these selfish so-and-sos were stopping her and her son from going about their day's business. I don't blame her one bit for being very, very angry. And all right, you probably shouldn't use the car to shunt those people forward. You probably shouldn't do that. But I bet, I'll bet there's a lot of you sitting at home feeling more sympathy right now for Sherilyn than they're feeling for those very, very selfish, and I think in many ways hugely misguided protesters. Now, today marks a bit of an anniversary. Article 50 was triggered five years ago today. Um, here I was talking um, at the time to on-demand news. Uh, there I was on the front page of a Daily Mail. Um, have a look at this clip of my interview and I'll tell you the story behind it. Well, it's a quiet day, you know. I just thought I'd slip out for a quiet lunchtime drink. Now, look, it's a big day and um, minor celebration. The big message is we have triggered Article 50. We have passed the point of no return. We are leaving the European Union. We've won the war. So the story was, I was so delighted that finally we triggered Article 50. And we should have triggered Article 50 immediately after the referendum. If we'd done that, we would not have given the Remainers and the establishment the time to build their massive campaign, uh, that campaign that was to basically stop Brexit from happening. If Article 50 had been triggered, none of that would have happened. But the Tories made a complete and utter mess of it because, of course, the official Conservative policy was that we should remain. Um, and, of course, we finished up with a Remainer Prime Minister in Theresa May. But finally, Article 50 did get triggered. Um, and I had a really, really busy day of interviews, starting early in the morning. And I've got to admit, by sort of early afternoon, I was kind of done with it all. And a gang of us went to one of the pubs in Westminster. Um, and I had a few more interviews to do, but I wasn't really too bothered, frankly, by that time of the day, whether I turned up or not. And then a freelance photographer got a picture of me there, and suddenly the media all came to me. The BBC, we had Australian television, German, French, and I spent the rest of the afternoon there at the pub doing the interviews. Some, of course, some of course would suggest that it was uh, somewhat irresponsible. But you know what? After 25 years of fighting, and perhaps giving up quite a lot to get us out of the European Union, to get our independence back, um, I was in a mood to celebrate. And I was thrilled when the Daily Mail the next day 
put this on the front page uh, of me with my Union Jack socks and cheers to a great British future. And the mail had given me a fair bit of stick over the years, but not on that day, I'm pleased to say. Now, more thoughts on do you really care anymore? about Partygate. Bob says, yes, this is not about parties or cake. It's about trust and honesty. Another viewer says, no, none of them are saints. Some get away with far worse things. I can think of a better use of police time. Marcus says, yes, I think many of us do care, mainly because of the pure hypocrisy and continuing lies. Also, he has quite clearly misled Parliament. Well, that is, of course, potentially a very serious charge. Paul says, I care. People are being prosecuted for having a bit of downtime during a very stressful period. And Jesse says, I'm only interested in the elected representatives who were involved, as they're the ones we can get rid of at the next election. Well, that's a fair point. Look, ultimately, we should care. Of course we should care, because it does show uh, we've got a government uh, that is not only hypocritical, not only arrogant, uh, but also, frankly, they just don't tell the truth. Uh, and that's what this whole episode has shown. But politics is a funny old business. Public opinion is a fickle old thing. And there are people out there who still care on principle, but there are many, many more, I suspect, right now, at this moment in time, who are thinking, you know what? We've got bigger things to worry about. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by an artist, an engineer, a designer, a BBC presenter of programmes like The One Show. He's had a very interesting, very, very varied life. I'll be joined in a moment on Talking Pints by Gary Levin. The GB News Tavern has been declared open. I'm joined by Gary Lavin, who's done many things in his life, including presenting shows on BBC Two and, indeed, The One Show. And, Gary, I want to say welcome to GB well, News. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Great, now, to, great to be here. Fantastic. Well, it's good to have you here. Now, mm. ahead of the programme, you've done a little drawing. Uh, yeah, I, I thought I was being a bit naughty, really, but uh, you be the judge. Well, You've got to find it first. <laughs> there you are. Go on. Right, there we are. That. You can keep Thanks, it. cheers. It says, there we are. Thanks, cheers. Have you crushed nuts? Well, I have to say, we've had previous complaints on Talking Pints about the lack of ice. We now have an ice machine. And I will admit, we haven't gone in for nut, but here we are. We now have nuts <laughs> just for you. So there we are. I don't even like nuts. Oh, but. Well, <laughs> Well, that's fine. I, I couldn't miss the, the, the musical Joe, you know. I love him. Listen, I love it. It's a, it's a great picture. And, Gary, you're an artist, an engineer, an inventor, almost a bit of an architect, I think, in some ways. Well, I've been building some uh, experimental structures and buildings and things. I'm not an architect, but I am a designer. Yeah. So I like to solve problems. So, you know, and one of the things I like to look at is... is alternative ways of doing stuff, you know. So I made a lot of these little structures uh, as earthquake-proof buildings, hurricane-proof buildings, and it all began through doing me work, my own project with Stonehenge, showing mm -hmm. how you could move the stones to Stonehenge. 
using very simple, flexible materials. And I realised then that, that we can get more out of structures if, if they're flexible. Uh, and let's get away from that big concrete idea. You know, let's just, let's just if you're in a hurricane, you, uh, it's great being able to withstand the wind. But if you can absorb that wind, make it go around you, if you can absorb that earthquake, think of Italy, you know, they're always troubled by earthquakes. Yeah. If you can absorb that and transfer all the, uh, the forces all around the building, uh, you're on a winner, you know. Um, but, but also I thought, I also need somewhere to live. Maybe I can make this work for myself. <laughs> but I'm well, running where, out of life, really. Where does all this creative thinking come from? Does it come from childhood? Does it come from school? Where does it come from? Well, a natural talent to communicate visually. I mean, uh, uh, when I was 18 months old or something, my mum and dad never bothered with crayons with me or paper or anything, but they gave me a piece of paper. And the first thing I got hold of it, and the first thing I drew was a car. The cars were a bit more square then, you know. Mm -hmm. I drew this little square car, and they looked at each other and said, well, I mean, where's he going? What, what's happening here? You know, um, but then we lived in a large, rambling slum, complete slum, no what, no, hardly any running water, toilet 100 yards away, in, in, in a, a big wasteland. Um, but it meant I was allowed to run free in this land and I could build dens and dig huge holes to okay. catch my dad and build all sorts of stuff and, and, and just invent things, you know. So you had the freedom to do those I things? I had the freedom to do that. It wasn't suburbia, you know. We, and all the, all the local kids used to join. I used to have a massive gang. Apparently I didn't know, but I had Lavin's gang because all these kids, <laughs> we, built, we built catapults and aircraft, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then I, uh, a natural progression was to actually, I joined the Vauxhall Craftsman's Guild as a, as a, as a student then. It was a, a, a postal thing and, and started, as, as lads do, they, every, every lad likes cars and they like to design cars. So I started doing that. Uh, but I also like to make things. So it was natural that I'd end up going to college. Yeah, but I began in the uh, in the cotton mill, first, well, the textile mill first, and uh, and then went to do uh, various qualifications and teaching qualifications. Uh, taught in Manchester for a while in high school, rough high school, and then taught in uh, further education and in FE and HE. Uh, but I got ill. I got septicemia. I've got I've got a disability in my legs and it. And uh, it took me six months to walk again. I thought I was going to, well, they thought I was going to snuff it. And, uh, but I survived, and so I thought, this is nature's way of telling me to get on with my own stuff. So I retired mm. early. Uh, and then I set up, I one of the first people on the internet and, uh, in the UK, and I set up this big website uh, advertising um, outdoor crafts and building walls and forging iron and all that sort of stuff. Uh, nobody was interested in that, but they did want to come along in my Land Rover and, uh, and tootle about the moors. And then I started getting orders for special Land Rover vehicles. So uh, I said, yeah, we can build them. And so, I, so, so, I mean, you, you were in retirement beginning to make a living out of what you love doing. Well, yeah, I mean, I shouldn't have done really because I was in a lot of pain, but uh, um, I couldn't, you can't stand still. I mean, I look, look you know, I carry, I carry my ideas book around wherever I go. Mind you, again, I'm running out of life. I'll never make half of these things. You're in here. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, and you just do, don't you? It becomes, it's bread and butter. And I used to say to the students, you are what you try out. 90% of design is, the, is, is what 
you leave out. You don't know what's going to work unless you try all sorts of things out, you know. Um, but uh, I, I, then I was stuck for a bit, you know, as a result of that. The BBC found me. Uh, how did that happen? Well, I built all these vehicles and there was a, there was a driving programme and they, uh, they wanted some, a four-wheel drive expert. And because I'd been one of the first people on the internet, my name popped up. I used to pop up in the top five mm-hmm. search engines. And, uh, um, and they got me in and put me on this um, as, as a, a little cutaway story where I had my big rusty tufty truck, brought it to Chelsea. Were you scared of doing telly? Uh, I'd been a teacher, you yeah. know, yeah. communication. Yeah. I knew how to, and I'd been a, a pub storyteller uh, and all that, you know. Um, so I knew that... I, I believe the, you, I believe you. The timing and the punchlines and yeah. there's a certain rhythm to it all. And I thought, well, I was, but yeah, I'm, I'm nervous now, you know. I mean, uh, 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 there is nervousness. But they found me and, uh, and apparently it was a success. So they tried me out for a series. And it's a social history series, but I made it a technology series, all about the inventions in your home. And it was great. I'm a complete unknown. And uh, it got, uh, what did it get? 12% of the audience, 2.7 million viewers. Fantastic. Is that fantastic? No, I mean, well, I think it's fantastic. Well, it is because actually, as a society, we've almost turned our backs on engineering and mm. making things and doing things. Young kids. I mean, I know that you talk design and technology and things like this. Yeah. You know, young kids growing up are not encouraged to become engineers. Uh, they're encouraged to do social sciences and, also, right, and, yeah. and, and, and all sorts of things. So the fact that you do a BBC Two series, every home should have one, and big numbers of people watch it, shows actually maybe there's a gap out there somewhere. Well, I would have thought so, but... Uh, yeah, maybe, but uh, you know, maybe we're not catering for this properly. Well, we, you know, that's 19 years ago now, and uh, yeah. uh, they said to me, oh, we've got enough uh, middle-aged presenters, thanks, and uh, and that was that, you know, and somebody else got the work, and uh, it's been, it's been... And it was difficult. So we went... To, it was hard finding any kind of work, you know, and I still got a um, teacher's pension. It's, very, it's not very good, so I had to find some sort of work. Uh, so we went to teach... My missus went to teach hairdressing in the Isle of Man and uh, she taught in Rochdale originally and that we can imagine the inner city problems there. Mm. And she got fed up with it, you know. And we, our lad was 11 and we wanted to take him and bring him up, he's dyslexic, quiet. We knew he would just be subsumed in a, in a school in the north of England. Took him to the Isle of Man, it was fantastic. And he got the childhood that I got. He got that roaming around the Yeah, country, which kids so. don't have anymore. I mean, we rented this little house on a farm, uh, but I told him how to fix lawnmowers, uh, ride on lawnmowers. Mm. Uh, got him, got him into mechanics in that simple kind of way. And then he didn't, him and his mate used to find old ride on lawnmowers and race them across the fields, you know. And then, it, then they started buying and selling chickens. And then they started at, at thirteen, and then started breeding chickens and selling them. And and and, and now he, he's 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 twenty four now, and he's. Um, so how do we get, how, how do we turn this around? Because. You know, you and I both know there's a massive increase in childhood obesity in this mm. country, uh, which is it, partly diet, but it's also partly not being out, roaming around, spending huge numbers of hours on mobile phones. Um, a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, uh, getting social sciences degrees at universities. I don't um, know how you solve it. I mean, it, it, society changes, doesn't it? Yeah, but we still need engineers. 
and we have to import a lot of them from overseas. We're not producing enough of our own people. Well, in the last few decades, I mean, I spent a lot of time with engineers, um, garage mechanics, farmers, and the same conversation all the time is, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're letting all this industry go. It's madness, yeah. madness. Yeah. And uh, and in the end, we've all been right, you know. And uh, when I made, I made a war memorial for Manchester Airport, uh, for the glider pilot regiment. Wow. And, uh, uh, fantastic. What a group of men they were. <laughs> well, I mean, fantastic. And uh, no, there was no government money to make this memorial because they trained at Manchester Airport. So I, they raised a few hundred quid. And so I went to British Aerospace and I made this thing in British Aerospace. Uh, and it was such a joy to work in that, 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 that massive factory in, in Chatterton in Manchester. Mm. Super set up, people doing proper things. With, with it, without pressure, everything being right. And I thought, thousand people work there. And I thought, how many people, how many places in Britain employ a thousand people doing productive stuff like very, that? Very few now. And all those old layers and all that stuff. I know I'm not, a lot of stuff needed replacing. But it's going to cost a lot of money to bring it all back. Yeah. No, but it's going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult. Now, what really interests me is, and by the way, you also got to present the one show, didn't you, as well? Yeah, only once. I, mean, I, I, I went to <laughs> but the... you still did. <laughs> yeah, I still did. I suppose at the end of the day, if I starve to death, I can, as I die, <laughs> as I'm nailing the lid on, I can say, I did it. Um, uh, but I went, well, I went to see them because I was doing the Stonehenge project. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Yeah. And I said, uh, can you help me with this? You know, and they said, well, we'll do a feature on it. But you're, you're too good, really, uh, to just do that. So uh, uh, they phoned me up when the, there was a, a Soyuz spacecraft brought to the Isle of Man. And, uh, and there was, it turned out to be a bit of a racket. <laughs> uh, they were going to, this, this Russian cosmonaut and an American businessman were going to run space tourism from the Isle of Man. And I was sent to interview them, you know, which was very interesting getting in the Soyuz mm. capsule. Mm. But everybody could see it, was, it just wasn't going to happen, you know, and uh, um, I think they might have taken the Isle of Man government for a ride. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and that was great, but I, I was a little bit out of practice. It'd be, it had been, what, it had been seven years since I'd uh, been on the box. So, but then a bit later, we did the, the whole feature about the Stone Age. This is, so tell me, you know, explain to us, how the hell did they get those stones there? How did it all, you know, I mean, we all know Stonehenge. Millions and millions of us have driven past or visited it. It's still one of the great... Great, isn't it? I mean, is it still a mystery or not? Or have you sussed it out? Well, I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm not, I'm not infallible. I'm not, a, I'm not an archaeologist. This is a problem I have all yeah. the time. But what I am, I'm from a building family. Working class family where people use their bodies as, as tools and levers and all that. And I always thought as a kid you'd see all the lecturers and students pulling on ropes, hauling mm. the stones mm. along. And I thought, they can't do it. The bodies aren't developed. I'm not saying this in any kind of macho way. No. They don't know how to use the body uh, in, a, in, in, in levering and you just... A flow, and, uh, you know, doing it the right way. And that, for instance, pulling the rope with your hand. Yeah. The first thing it hurts is your skin. Mm. That's just not like a horse doesn't do, do that. A horse pushes forward on the on the harness, you know. So um, I thought this is got to, this can't be right. And I remember my dad showing me when when uh, he was building a path to the outside toilet. We had these big stone slabs. First thing he made me do as a kid, I had to move these stone slabs and drop them into slots in the ground, you know. And, and he showed me all the various ways. And I thought the problem is, is you need to do these experiments with people and know how to work. 
and how to and can relate to the stone. So I, my idea was to roll it. So, you know, they always show films of rolling on rollers. Well, the theory is that the smaller stones came from South Wales. That's 200 miles away. Yeah. But, I mean, that's going to be a struggle on rollers over uh, all sorts of ground. And I did think maybe they came down the River Y. And so, but I made the whole thing a roller. Uh, we made um, these, these giant baskets and put the stone inside. And then I chopped down, uh, I thinned out a forest and chopped down all these saplings and rammed them inside to act like springs. And the, the theory was that if we just push it, it like that, like a big tyre, yeah. um, we'd roll it along. And, uh, and rather than get academics, I know they probably don't like it, we got a local <laughs> rugby league team, 13 blokes, you know, and me. And uh, uh, and we pushed it along at first, ooh, you know, because I had no time to iron anything out. And it went across the field, and we brought it back, you know, this this five-ton weight, you know. So you sussed it. All those pictures we grew up with as kids, with all the ropes being pulled, probably weren't. Right. Well, who knows? Let's all... <laughs> <laughs> Gary, all I can say is keep on with free thinking. Keep on going out and solving some of these mysteries. And thank you very much for joining well, me Well, thanks on for GB having me. Thank you. It's Barrage the Farage, and who knows, maybe we'll get some engineering questions for Gary as well, so he's staying with me. Chris asks, what do you think is the reason behind Ukraine not severing Russian gas and oil pipelines that pass through the country? Because they're being paid. I mean, this, it's unbelievable, isn't it? The Ukrainian government are being paid by the Russians for this trade to continue. Oh, and of course, Germany asked, and Italy are still paying vast amounts of money to Russia. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, Aaron Va Farage at GB News asks, what do you make of Michael Gray being made Ofcom chairman? And ask Gary if the BBC licence fee should go to a subscription model. Right. Michael Grade, <laughs> Michael Grade, I think, is a terrific choice. Some say at 79 he's too old. I don't think he is. Uh, he's held some big jobs in broadcasting. I think he's a very balanced guy. Uh, and I think it's a very, very good appointment. The BBC licence fee. Gary, what do you think about the BBC licence fee? Well, you know, I mean, we've all paid it since year dot. Um, and, uh, it, and a lot of my people that I know that still work at the BBC say that, uh, well, that's where all the kids are trained. They, are, they were the benchmark of, of televisual skill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I get that, I get that. And then one day I thought, I don't watch it. I don't watch it anymore. <laughs> I, I watch talking pictures, the, the odd, odd documentary on other channels, and I, and I watch it. So it's out, it's out of date, is it? Well, I'm paying whatever it is, yeah. you know. I'd rather pay that to somebody else. Yeah, fair dues. Right, we've got time, I think, for one more question, and you'll like this one too. Fraser asks, what is the greatest military aircraft of all time? Well, I don't know. I'm going to say the Spitfire, but I've no doubt Gary would disagree. Well, with I mean, we're bound to, aren't we? It's such an iconic thing. The Hurricane is obviously just as good. Uh, uh, the Lancaster's great, but we're all going to say those British things. We are, aren't we? Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about B-52 or the Vulcans or something like that? The Vulcans are quite something, aren't they? Yeah. There we are. You see, there we are. I get let off the hook because actually some of these difficult questions get answered by the guests, which <laughs> is great. <laughs>